Hello there. This is another episode of Reading Through the New Testament with Pastor Spencer. This is week 30, the week of July 24th through 30th. And we are in 1 Corinthians, wrapping it up, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 through 2 Corinthians chapter 1 this week. Hope you're doing well this week. Thank you for joining us. Um, we are still in 1 Corinthians, like we said. We're going to start off 2 Corinthians um, uh, this week, and and uh, and then we'll we'll really be full fledged into it uh, uh, next week. Um, th- today, uh, let's start. Let's do this first. Um, let's go into sec. Let's do a quick intro of Second Corinthians background information, and then after that, we'll do some uh, thoughts and things we can learn from First Corinthians. We won't go into Second Corinthians as far as like some of the readings from it. Um. We'll just do some background. Um, so uh, I think that's the way we'll kind of go forward today. So we've been in First Corinthians, right? Paul has written to this church. He's talked to them. He's Remember, he planted the church. He's writing to them. He is concerned for them. And in First Corinthians, he's writing to a letter in response to their letter. Um, right? He's heard concerns, but they've also sent him a letter about with questions and such and such. Well, it seems like there have been at least four letters that we know of that probably were written by Paul to the Corinthians. We only have two of them. So Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church will continue after we're done today with set with first Corinthians and his relationship with them is continually is, is complex as we'll see in the second letter. The book of second Corinthians is, as I think I've read in, it's probably Paul's most difficult letter to interpret. Paul is at the same time. It's one of the. Mo- it's probably the most personal letter that Paul's going to write. Um, Paul here is showing us what it looks like for a minister of Jesus Christ to love the flock of God, even whenever they are uh, really rejecting him, misunderstanding him, and we see his love, his compassion, his shepherd's heart. His firmness at times, yes. Um, he is going to deal with uh, people in the church. And um, and so this this Second Corinthians letter is a fascinating letter. I actually think it's very interesting. Um, well, it's a couple of some key facts here, right? Of course, Paul wrote it. He wrote it from Macedonia, uh, maybe even Philippi, it seems. I'm getting this stuff, by the way, from one of my New Testament introductory books. That So just so you know, this isn't stuff I've just made up. Um, but... It was written about 54 or 55, so maybe a year or so, maybe a year or two, I suppose, um, after 1 Corinthians. Um, and so Paul is writing this to this church, to Corinth, um, right? He's, he's wanting it to um, this church to come back to really be the people of God that they're called to be. Um, why is he doing this? The occasion, the background, it seems right here is um, uh, kind of I'm pulling here from this uh, New Testament uh, introduction book of a Titus. Uh, the, the Titus apparently has brought back a report and he's talking about how the church is doing, their condition, what's going on there. And, and so Paul hears this from Titus. And also there becomes this additional information that comes in also about these false apostles. Paul calls them super apostles, maybe celebrity apostles. These guys who supposedly were just really amazing and compared to Paul, right? Paul's not very special compared to these guys. And so Paul here is writing 
as this introductory book puts it, and I'm quoting here, to defend Paul's apostolic ministry, explain the nature of the new covenant, encourage sacrificial giving to the, re- to the relief offering, and to challenge the claims of false apostles. So that's what Paul is doing in this letter, um, this fascinating letter here that he's writing in which he shows love and uh, compassion and also firmness. And, and there's, there's questions about how this letter was put together, and you can, you can look all that up yourself if you're interested, um, because it's interesting. Paul has talks about his relation. So the, the, let's, talk, let's go through the outline, actually, as we do this. So there's an introduction in chapter 1. We've got Paul's relationship with the Corinthians uh, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2, verse 11. Then Paul begins to defend his ministry um, in the middle of chapter 2 all the way through chapter seven. He's talking about his ministry. He'll talk about the new covenant. We are jars of clay on and on and on. Talks about his ministry. And then eventually in chapter eight through nine, chapters eight and nine, Paul talks about the collection for the believers in Jerusalem. Remember, they were taking up a relief offering to support the Christians in Jerusalem who were suffering. Well, then in chapter 10, Paul kicks it up again a notch. And we read, so it looks like, okay, so this should be, right, um, verse 15 says, thanks, this is chapter 9, verse 15 says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Then all of a sudden, there's a shift in chapter 10, verse 1, I, Paul, entreat myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness. And he continues on and is very straightforward and firm with them. And so there could be the potential that Paul had written a letter up through chapter 9, basically, right? And then new information had come in maybe at the last minute about these apostles, these super apostles who are coming in and um, taking advantage of the Corinthian church. And Paul here has to write in response to that. And so it could be that Paul here is now, we're really getting Paul's passionate response in 10, 12, and 13 to the church. So that's, we obviously we don't for sure know, I guess, but you can read more about that. It's fascinating. And, and then Paul will close in chapter 13 as well. This is a beautiful letter though, and really personal and helps us to get inside the heart. Uh, in some ways it helps us to see what, what makes Paul tick? What is it that drives his ministry? What is it that that is at the heart of the Apostle Paul and why he does what he does? Why does he exercise such patience and love towards this church and towards all churches? And, and how should we as Christians model that as well? That's really what he's going to get into in 2 Corinthians. So it'll be a lot of fun. So hold that thought because we're going to get into that next week and with the readings. This week I want to wrap up 1 Corinthians, however. And so that's what Paul's going to be getting to. But the letter that was written before 2 Corinthians, obviously, is 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians, remember, we have been focusing on the theme of love throughout the book now and really in um, 8, 9, 10 um, and again, and you know, we've been talking about, he's been talking about how 
Listen, brothers, we are a diverse body in chapter 12. Remember that we are we are one body with many members. We all exist for the common good. We're to take care of each other. We're to build each other up. We are not to take advantage of our rights, but we're to serve one another in love because Christ has loved us. Therefore, this is how we should live. And Paul then goes into chapter 13 now. So looking here at chapter 13, and Paul opens up with the famous love chapter. I remember whenever I was in a child in, uh, <clears throat> we had, uh, they called it Bible drill. Um, and it was in a Southern Baptist context in Missouri. And one of the things you had to do was, you know, you had to memorize verses. You had to know all the books of the Bible, but you also had to know key chapters in the Bible. And I believe the love chapter, chapter 13 was, was one of those, um, very, very helpful, um, thing to, to learn the scriptures as a kid. And I still remember that, um, so chapter 13, the love chapter, um, and Paul opens up this, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind, and so on. And so Paul closes in verse 13. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, it's fascinating, isn't it, that love, the love chapter, and sometimes, I don't know, if it, sometimes it can be applied, and it is appropriate, because Paul is going and talking about uh, describing to us what love looks like, and that is helpful. But it's very important for us to be reminded that the love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, is first and foremost being uh, spoken to a local church about their relationship to one another as members of the body of Christ. It is a chapter devoted to how Christians are to treat each other because you know why? We are so tempted to not be loving with one another. That's why God has to remind us of these things because we are not patient naturally. We are not kind. Now we praise God through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We've been born again and, and God's, God's spirit is at work in us to enable us to, to put to death the old things, that, the, the old actions and conducts and habits that we used to have and to begin putting on the new habits and conduct and actions that, that honor the Lord, the good works that he's called us to walk in. But the reality is, is we still struggle with that. We have to be reminded of that in the Bible. So Paul here is reminding them love is patient and kind. Remember, knowledge puffs up. He's telling them, right? Your knowledge is really uh, done no good for you because it's only made you puffed up and have a swollen head. You're a bunch of know-it-alls, but your knowledge has not been seasoned with love and with the fear of God and humility. When it is seasoned with love and with the fear of God and humility, then our knowledge is characterized as patient and kind, not envying or boasting, not arrogant or rude, on and on. And then Paul says that, right? Faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. I want to read the, uh, Calvin's commentary. Um, we've been using John Calvin in 1 Corinthians, and this is the last week we'll be using it um, this week because we're wrapping up 1 Corinthians. Um, uh, chapter 13, verse 13, where he talks about how faith, hope, and love uh, abide, but the greatest of these is love. And let's see what Calvin has to say here. 
He says what all the foregoing amounts to is that love stands high above all the other gifts. But instead of the list of gifts which Paul had given earlier, he now puts faith and hope alongside love. For all the others are summed up in these three. For what purpose does the whole ministry serve but that we may be trained in these three gifts? So faith has a wider range of meaning here than in earlier instances of its use. For it is as though Paul said, there are indeed many and differing gifts, but they are all looking to and making for this one end. So what is Calvin saying, by the way, right here? He's highlighting the fact that Paul is pointing out that no matter what gift No matter what role you play in the church, if you're a pastor, if you're a deacon, if you're an usher, if you're a Sunday school teacher, if you work in the kitchen crew, uh, if you uh, do this or that or the other thing, whatever you do, everything is comes together in this faith, hope and love. That's what he's that's what he's saying. Uh, Calvin continues, therefore, to remain means that this is the amount left over. After everything has been deducted, as when an account is made up in bookkeeping, for faith does not continue after death, as the apostle contrasts it with sight elsewhere, and teaches that it lasts only so long as we are absent from the Lord. We now understand what is meant by faith in this verse, namely, the knowledge of God and his will, which we obtain through the ministry exercised by the church. Or, if you prefer it, faith understood in its fullness and in its proper sense. So, faith is that knowledge, is what Calvin says, knowledge of God and his will. And how do we learn knowledge of God and his will? It's not like God just speaks it directly into our mind. We, he uses his church. The church is the means, the tool that God uses to teach us. God teaches us through the church, and he teaches us his will. But faith ends at death. Because faith is trusting in the things that we cannot see. It's confidence in him. And then, but whenever we, when, whenever we die and when we go to be with the Lord, we will see Jesus. We will see him, the, the incarnate Lord. And therefore, faith will give way to sight. Second of all is hope. Calvin writes here, hope is nothing else but perseverance in faith. For once we have come to believe in the word of God, after that we have still to go on until all things are brought to completion. Therefore, as faith is the mother of hope, it is also sustained by it to keep it from perishing. So what does he say hope is? Hope is the continuing in in faith, the persevering in faith, going on in faith, enduring to completion. And lastly, he says this about the greatest of these is love. Calvin writes this, we will find that that is so if we assess its excellence by the effects it has as they have already been detailed by Paul, and if we also take its everlastingness into consideration. Each person derives personal blessing from his own faith and hope, whereas love is poured out for the good of others. Faith and hope are the concomitants of our imperfect state, but love will continue even in the conditions of perfectness. For if we examine the results of faith one by one and compare them, we will find that faith is in many ways superior. Yes, and even love itself, according to the testimony of the same apostle, 1 Thessalonians 1.3, is a product of faith. So love, this is very important, this is, this, this is important for, uh, for us to understand, faith is a fruit, or excuse me, love is a fruit of faith. Faith comes first, love follows. And the effect is, without a doubt, Calvin writes, inferior to its cause. 
In addition, a remarkable tribute is paid to faith, which does not apply in the case of love when John, 1 John 5, 4, says of faith that it is our victory which overcomes the world. Finally, it is by faith that we are born again, become the sons of God, obtain eternal life, and Christ dwells in us. I make no mention of countless other blessings, but those few examples will be enough to bring out what I mean when I say that faith is superior to love in many of its effects. It is clear from that that love is said to be greater here, not in every respect, but because it will last forever and now has a primary role in keeping the church in being. So he's, why is he doing this? He's saying he's wanting to highlight the fact that so some people say, well, see, their faith, it doesn't matter. Well, Calvin's saying, no, elsewhere in Scripture, it clearly affirms the that faith in some ways is superior to love because you cannot love as you should if you do not believe first as you should. Faith gives brings forth love. Faith in Jesus Christ bears forth love to Christ and to others. Um, so he's doing it in a very... Uh, he's, he's just highlighting the sense in which Paul says love is the greatest. But why does he do this? Well, he, he says this, but it is strange how self-satisfied the papists, and when he says papists, again, Calvin's referring to the Roman Catholics at his time. He says, but it is strange how self-satisfied the papists are in proclaiming in tones of thunder that if faith satisfies, if faith justifies, therefore love, which is described as greater, does it much more. Now, there is already a clear answer to this contention in what I have said. Now, why is he saying this? Because some people will say, well, listen, you know, faith, faith doesn't, if faith justifies, how much more does love? Because remember, in uh, the Roman Catholic system, you have, it's not, you're not simply made right with God by receiving his promises. That's what faith does. Faith believes the will of God. It trusts in Jesus Christ. And that's how we're made right with God. Now, we don't get rid of love. Faith is a fruit of love, of, or excuse me, love is a fruit that comes from faith. But the Roman Catholics were saying, actually, love also, love the good things you do for other people, the things that you do to take care of other people, which are good, but they were saying those things can make you acceptable with God too, because Paul said, love is greater than faith, so love can justify you. But notice, notice, what, his, notice what the scriptures say. The scriptures never say that we're justified by love. We're never justified by our love. We are justified by faith because faith is that which by we receive and rest upon Jesus. Now, after that, we do bear fruit in love, in our love to Jesus Christ and in our love for all the saints. Um, and there's uh, Calvin giving an analogy. He says, but supposing we grant that love is preeminent in every way, what are we to say to this kind of argument that says that because it is greater, it is more effective for justifying men? According to that way of thinking, a king will plow the land better than a farmer and will make a better job of a shoe than a shoemaker because he is a man of nobler birth than both of them together. Similarly, a man will run faster than a horse and will carry a bigger load than an elephant because he is, superior be he is a superior being to them. Again, on the same principle, the angels will give much better light to the earth than the sun and moon because they are so much above them. If the power to justify depended on the worth or merit of faith, perhaps we ought to pay heed to what they say. But we do not teach that faith justifies. In other words, Calvin's saying faith does not make us right with God, give us a clean slate with God, a clean record with God. 
faith does we but we do not teach that faith justifies because it is more valuable or holds a more honored place but because it receives the righteousness which is offered freely in the gospel greatness or worth has no part to play in this and counts for nothing here that is why this verse affords no more assistance to the papists than if the apostle had actually placed faith before everything else. So Calvin there is, is also highlighting uh, in his context, in his own context, uh, something very important, the fact that faith alone uh, justifies us. And it's not love because uh, the Roman Catholics at that time and still to this day on the books, at least according to the official doctrine, of the Roman church still teach that we uh, have to uh, merit somehow by what we do eternal life. And that of course is flat contrary to what we believe as Protestants and Baptists. Okay. So faith, hope, and love. But then Cal- then, then, then Paul continues uh, to talk about spiritual gifts and in particular the gift of tongues and prophecy and goes in through this and talks about how these things should function in the life of the church. Um, he calls them to build one another up again. But then eventually in verse 40, he says this, uh, verse 39, I'll, I'll read there. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. So all things should be done decently in order. I want to read that. I want to think about that verse. What does it mean that all things should be done decently and in order? What does Paul mean? Why does he say that? And how can we apply that to our church setting today? Um, Because what was happening here was very chaotic. The worship of the living God should not be chaotic or confusing, but clear and reverent and uh, appropriate to his divine majesty. Calvin here has this to say about verse 40. He says, this conclusion is more general for not only does it sum up the whole situation in a few words, but also the different aspects of it. And more than that, it provides us with a suitable standard for assessing everything connected with external organization. Since he had dealt with rights in various passages, he wanted at this point to sum everything up very briefly. Namely, that seemliness should be preserved and disorder should be avoided. This statement shows that he was not willing to put people's consciences under obligation to the instructions he gave above, as if they were binding for their own sake, but only insofar as they make for seemliness and peace. From this we acquire, as I have said, a general principle, which tells us the purpose which the organization of the church ought to be serving. The Lord allows us freedom in regard to outward rights in order that we may, by by rights, by the way, he's talking about uh, in regards to outward ceremonies or the way in which we conduct our worship or the way in which we uh, externally live as a church, right? We do have some freedom, um, right? The Lord doesn't tell us, you know, um, while he commands us clearly, um, you know, I want you to, uh, you know, he commands us to have the word to be central, to have it read, um, to have baptism, the Lord's Supper, the word taught. Um, he commands us to pray um, and to sing to him uh, songs and hymns and spiritual songs. He doesn't tell us, however, um, you know, get together at 1030 or 9 o'clock or 
11.30 or whatever. He doesn't tell us the time. He doesn't tell us exactly where we are to get together, does he? We could get together any number of locations. There is no holy place on the earth now. Um, there are many different ways. He doesn't tell us exactly how we're, he doesn't tell us how to design our building. He doesn't tell us whether we need foldy chairs or pews or if we should have chairs at all. Um, on and on and on and on. God leaves us, uh, the Lord has given us freedom in those external outward rites or the ways in which we do church uh, externally, right? And all of those things. That's what he's saying. The Lord allows us freedom in regard to outward rites in order that we might not, in order that we may not think that his worship is confined to those things. Good reminder, good reminder. Part of that freedom is a good reminder to us that we are not saved by, I mean, we have to be reminded of this, that are maybe not even saved, but, um, our growth in the Christian life is is not confined to uh, the Bible version we use or the time of day we meet or um, the exact song that we sing or um, on and on and on, right? We could think of any number of ways that um, all these freedom issues that we do have freedom in. That's what he's saying. Oh, his worship is not confined to those things. There's a spiritual element to it, and that's a good thing. Uh, Calvin continues, at the same time, however, he has not allowed us unlimited and unbridled liberty, but has, so to speak, put railings around round about it. Or at any rate, he has restricted the freedom which he has given us in such a way that it is only from his word that we can make up our minds about what is right. Therefore, when this passage is considered properly, it will reveal a difference between the tyrannical edicts of the Pope, which crush the consciences of men in a detestable form of slavery, and the godly laws of the Church, which preserve its discipline and order. Furthermore, we may easily infer from this that the Church's laws are not to be regarded as mere human traditions, seeing that they are based on this general injunction, and clearly give the impression of being approved, as it were, from the mouth of Christ himself." What is Calvin saying here uh, from this verse that all things need to be done decently um, and in order? So he's saying this is because what he wants to do is to highlight to us that we're not under tyranny. That was one of the big complaints of the Protestant reformers like Calvin and Luther, um, that the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, had exercised a tyranny. He was enslaving Christians to unnecessary laws and unnecessary ways of worshiping. In fact, ways of worshiping God that were contradicted by Scripture. And so instead, Calvin and Luther and the other reformers, um, and eventually our Baptist forefathers come out of that Protestant stream, they said, no, it is not what the Pope says that makes worship worship or his laws are laws. It is because they are based upon Scripture and Scripture alone. At the same time, there is freedom that the church has, you know, for, you know, we have to decide at a certain time to get together to have church. There's nothing more holy about 11 o'clock than 10.30 or 8.30 or 9.45 or whatever. We do those things for good order, but not because we're not because they're more holy in themselves, but simply because we have to have we have to have good order and we have to have decency to allow us to do those things. So there's a difference between the tyrannical edicts, which put us in a form of slavery and the church's um 
order and laws which say, listen, uh, so that we can all get together, we're going to get together at 11 o'clock or 1030, right? That's We're going to get together at that time as a church. But we're not um, binding you into slavery. We're just saying, listen, for the good of all of us, this is a good time that works for us. Let's get together at this time. Calvin's trying to highlight that, that... Um, that we don't want to put ourselves under bondage to men again, but we have the freedom in the Lord, and we can adjust those things as as need be. So Paul there is calling the church to decency and in order, but then in chapter 15, he turns his attention to something else, a very important issue. It appears that some had denied that Jesus Christ had been, um, or at least that the resurrection was not to come, um, questioning the resurrection of the dead, Uh, and such like this. And Paul says, listen, this is not in conformity with the gospel that I taught you. This is, this is not what I taught you. I told you Jesus Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures was raised again on the third day Uh, from the dead. He was seen. Paul says, no, you cannot deny these things because if, if Christ was not risen from the dead, we will not rise from the dead. If we don't rise from the dead, then not even Christ is risen from the dead. These two things go together, and they're so important. And in fact, our eternal life and our joy and our salvation is dependent upon his rising from the dead for us. So this is what we must believe. That's what Paul is is getting after here in this passage of Scripture. Well, then eventually, I want to read this section here in chapter 15, verse 20. Paul writes this, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. So Paul here is arguing and describing for us what this resurrection means and how our how Christ's resurrection is connected to our resurrection, how our resurrection is connected to his, and so on. So let's read here, beginning at verse 20 uh, here, um, but this is Calvin's commentary on this passage of Scripture. He writes this, Having shown how everything would be completely upset if we deny the resurrection of the dead, Paul takes this time for granted what he had fully proved before, that Christ has risen again. And he adds that he is the first fruits, a metaphor borrowed, it would seem, from the ancient practice under the law. For just as the whole year's crop was dedicated in the first fruits, so the power of Christ's resurrection is extended to all of us. Or you may prefer a simpler explanation, that in him the first fruit of the resurrection was gathered. However, I myself prefer to understand the verse in this sense, that the rest of the dead will follow him in the same way as the whole harvest does the first fruits. And this is confirmed by the next verse, beginning in verse 21 and 22 now, since by death, since by man came death, Calvin writes, Paul needs to prove that Christ is the first fruits. And on the other hand, that he was not raised up from the dead as an isolated individual. He makes his proof from contrasts. Because death is not something natural, but is due to the sin of man. Therefore, just as Adam did not die for himself alone, but for us all, so it follows that Christ, who is the antitype, did not rise again merely for himself. For he came to restore everything which had been brought to ruin in Adam. But the nature of this argument of his must be noted, because he does not join issue with the use of a figure of speech or an example, but he relies on opposite causes to prove opposite effects. The cause of death, 
is Adam, and we die in him. Therefore Christ, whose function it is to restore what we have lost in Adam, is the cause of life for us, and his resurrection is the foundation and pledge of ours. And just as Adam is the originator of death, so Christ is the one with whom life has its origin. In the fifth chapter of Romans, he uses the same contrast, but with this difference, that there he is dealing with spiritual life and death. But here, the point at issue is the resurrection of the body, which is the reward of the spiritual life. So what Calvin here is arguing is pointing out what Paul is doing. Paul is saying, just as death came about through Adam, the first man, Christ has come to undo and reverse everything that Adam brought about. Death came from Adam. Jesus came as a new Adam to bring life and to be the cause of life in his resurrection. And this is, this is the, the contrast, the parallel contrast between Adam and Christ. Calvin continues in talking about verse 23, uh, about he each in his own order. Uh, Calvin writes, he deals with a question which someone might raise. If the life of Christ draws ours along with it, why do we have no visible evidence of this? Instead, although Christ has risen from the tomb, we rot in it. That's a good question. Paul's answer is that God has appointed another way of ordering things. Let it therefore be enough for us that we now have the first fruits in Christ, but the time for our resurrection will be when he comes. For our life must still be hid with him, because he has not yet appeared. It would therefore be quite wrong to want to anticipate that day when Christ will be revealed. So, he's highlighting here the fact that, because some people say, well, listen, so you're saying when Jesus rose, because he rose, we, we rise. But why are we still dying? Why do we go and rot in the grave? Why will we do that? And Paul's answer is, listen, you, Jesus is the first fruits. Now you will raise at the last day. So this is the way God has ordered it. But you can know because Christ raised from the dead that you will raise assuredly because he has raised. Whatever happened to him must happen to you because you're in him now. You're no longer in Adam. You're in Christ. That is who you are now. That is who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what he's saying there. That's what he's calling us back now to, um, to, uh, he's calling us to, uh, to see the resurrection and what will happen. Eventually he continues on in verse 24. He says, after that, the end, when he shall deliver up. He's talking about deliver up the kingdom. He must, uh, what does he say? He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Calvin writes this, Paul put a bridle on man's impatience by asserting that the time would not be ripe for our new life until the coming of Christ. But because this world is like a stormy sea in which we are constantly being tossed about, and because our lot is so uncertain, or rather full of troubles, and because everything is subject to sudden change, weak minds could be thrown into a state of agitation by these things. Therefore, Paul now calls our attention back to that day, saying that everything will be put in order then. Therefore, the end will be then, in other words, the goal of our course, the peaceful haven, the situation immune from change of every kind. At the same time, he warns us that we must wait for that end, because it is not appropriate for us to receive the crown, in the middle of the race. He's right. We still have to run that race. We have to get to the end. At the end, then at the resurrection day, we will enjoy the new life fully that Jesus has given us in his resurrection. 
Calvin continues, it will be explained a little later on how Christ will deliver up the kingdom to the Father. When he says to God, even the Father, that can be taken in two ways. Either that God the Father is called the God and Father of Christ, or that the name Father is added by way of explanation. In the latter case, the conjunction even will mean namely. As far as the former is concerned, there's nothing incongruous. Uh, On and on, Calvin is saying there. And that Christ, okay, yeah, this is what he's saying. As far as the, the former is concerned, there is nothing incongruous or unusual in saying that Christ is in subjection to God. This is a key statement as far as his human nature is concerned. So, Christ is subject to God the Father as the God-man, as far as his human nature is concerned. But as regards his deity, he is equal and not subjected to the Father. A very important distinction in theology that we make in the Trinity. It actually is very important. Um, and, uh, and maybe you can you can look that up yourself later on, but... um. Or come and talk to me and we can talk about it. But it's it's a lot of fun. A lot of fun stuff there. Um, important stuff. Um, let's see here. Do I want to keep going on here? He's got some stuff about whenever Christ shall have abolished all rule um, and such. But the, the key thing is here is that Christ reigns as the king. And as we see in Psalm 110, is going to put all things under his feet. And that will be the day. In that day of ultimate victory and of the resurrection that we will enjoy the full fruits and benefits of everything that Jesus Christ has accomplished and bought for us. And he will lavish us with all of his gifts uh, in that day whenever he raises us from the dead. Well, Paul now is wrapping up his epistle uh, in chapter 16 here. He is uh, finishing up and calling them for one last time. He calls them to take up that collection again. He uh, tells them about his plans for travel. He is uh, doing all of these things, and he's giving them final instructions and greetings. And then eventually, I want to read here, verses 13 and 14, he writes this. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Good closing words for us to think about, aren't they? Very good words. Let's think about that and see what Calvin has to say here um, in this section of verses 13 and 14. He says this, This is a brief exhortation, but a very important one. He orders them to watch, so that Satan might not take them by surprise when they were off their guard. For as warfare goes on without a break, so the watch must be maintained uninterrupted. But we are mentally alert when we are not hampered by earthly cares and are free to meditate on the things of God. For as the body is weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and becomes fit for nothing, so the cares and passions of the world, sloth or indifference, are like the spiritual drunkenness which overpowers the mind. The second call to them is to continue steadfastly in the faith, or to keep hold of the faith, so that they stand firm, because it is the foundation on which we rest." But he is clearly pointing out the way to continue steadfastly. It is by resting on God with unshakable faith. In the third place comes something that is closely related to that, for he encourages them to be manly and courageous. And because we are naturally weak, he urges them in the fourth place to be strengthened or to obtain strength. For where we translate be strong, Paul uses only one word, which is equivalent in meaning to be strengthened. And lastly, in verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. Calvin writes this. Paul again repeats the rule that should govern all our dealings with each other. 
So his wish is that love should be in control because the biggest fault of the Corinthians was that each one was concerned with his own affairs to the neglect of others. Well, that's a good way to be reminded and to close here. We have great knowledge about what we have in Jesus Christ. God has revealed um, a lot to us. Of course, we don't understand him fully, but he's given us so much. It's good to have that knowledge, but that knowledge That knowledge must be seasoned with the fear of God and with love for other people. Otherwise, it's just a hindrance and puffs us up. And so Paul here is calling the Corinthian church back to Christ, back to the gospel, and to live and to practice, to practice what it means to be in Christ to practice the ramifications, to live out and to develop habits of life that are in step with the truth of the gospel. That is what Paul is calling this church to. He's calling them back to live as the people of God in a sinful city, yes, but they can do it with God's help. And the same is true for you and me. Because we have the certain hope of the resurrection, uh, we can be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because we know that our labor is not in vain. We know that the Lord is with us. We know that he is among us. We know that we are his body. Therefore, let us work hard. Let us love each other. That's what Paul is trying to say, isn't he? Is to see what we have in Christ and all of those resources that we have in him to tap into those resources in him and now to live a life of gratitude and of holiness for great grace that we have received. That's what Paul's calling them to. Now, did they get the message? Well, we'll see. Um, Like all of us, I think the Corinthians, we can identify with them because um, they had issues. Well, we've got issues. And um, we can identify with them a lot. So next week, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians uh, exclusively, uh, beginning in chapter 2. And we'll begin reading from there next week. I really appreciate you listening to this, and I hope it's been encouraging to you. Um, and I hope, uh, I hope that uh, uh, one of the things too I hope is that um, listening to uh, John Calvin's commentary. So maybe you've never read him before, or listened to him before. You'll see the the really helpful commentary that he does give us, and especially in his emphasis there on love and the call to worship God, but also to be humble, humble and loving. And it's just very good stuff. So maybe check him out. Um, if you uh, have your internet or whatever, um, just check them out. You might find them interesting. I think next time on Second Corinthians, I'm thinking about using Matthew Henry. So if you have a Matthew Henry set, the famous, you can or you can look him up online. He's a very famous old commentator, um, and we have him in the new library as well. So um, check that out, and it should be should be a lot of fun. Well, thank you for listening to this. Uh, as always. Uh, Have a great week. Take care. God bless.